Welcome back to the Comics Course, a offering of Miskatonic University's remote education program, offering Literature 209, Graphical Literature and Society and History as a podcast for your edutainment. Edutainment was a big phrase in the late 90s, early 2000s. I don't hear it much anymore. Thank goodness. Uh, as always, my ever-persecuted TA is with me, Rowan. Say hello, Rowan. Hello. And I am Professor Hamby. As always, links to all my social media and that jazz will be in the show notes. Man, it has been a slog to get this started today, hadn't it? Mm-hmm. The computer did not want to cooperate until I spilled root beer all over the table and suddenly it started working. Why? I don't know. Wanted you to suffer first. I made a comment to somebody I was chatting with that uh, uh, maybe the gods wanted uh, some root beer. So it was a sacrifice. Yeah. Turns out they don't need a full physical creature. They just need a liquid. Well, you know, the old idea is you take a goat or a sheep and you throw them on uh, a pyre for a sacrifice and, but you make sure the pyre doesn't go too hot because you'll just take whatever the gods don't pick up. <laughs> <laughs> now, we do have Chapter 7 of Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell's From Hell to talk about today. But we also have something else. Something, uh, I, I don't know if you know this, but your fellow TA, Matthias, uh, is now working for me because I'm the only one who knows how to forge uh, Dr. Feckett's signature on his time cards. Um, and so I sent him to the store to get us some root beers and stuff. And so we have our first two root beers to evaluate. Now on your left here is the Great K brand, which I believe is the store brand for Kroger, mm. grocery store chain Kroger. And I'm a little scared of this because it's a sugar-free. And the last time I had a sugar-free cream soda or root beer, it was one of the major brands. I forget who it was. And I think it was the cream soda. Yeah. And it was foul. Yeah, it was really I foul. I remember that. So I, I'm a little cre- disturbed here. But we'll take our preferred of these two and put them in our runner-up challenges against some others. Okay, so th- try this one. No. No. I'm not loving it. It's creamy, but it doesn't really have any of that sassafras you want from root beer, does it? Yeah. It's super light. I like a strong root beer. Now, we did have Jaffa Cakes. However, I split the sleeve between us, and you gobbled your half like (laughs) Thor with freshly roasted goat. Um, It was good. (laughs) Matthias found a Bosnian grocery store... And got us this brand Delicige Strawberry Flavored European Biscuits. Uh, For my American listeners who don't know what Jaffa Cakes are, um, they are a light uh, cookie dough with a fruit filling, making a little dome, and then a dark chocolate over that. They are absolutely delicious. I adore them. Um... And here, I will share one of my two remaining Jaffa cakes with you. Thank you. you. <laughs> okay, now the other one is Red Rock Premium Root Beer. 
since 1885, Atlanta, Georgia. Now, when I was a kid, you could find Red Rock uh, strawberry sodas around, but mm -hmm. that's all I remember. And apparently, uh, Matthias found a whole bunch of Red Rock sodas at Kroger, which was wow. intriguing. So let's try this. That's a little better. I still can't say I'm blown away by it, though. Yeah. Yeah. But it definitely beats the sugar-free one. Yeah. I don't... What's that aftertaste? I mean, that's the sassafras. But it, it's not really doing it for me. I've already opened the bottle. We might as well finish it. Mm -hmm. So this is the Red Rock Root Beer. Not bad. Not bad. I, I, it's middle range, in yeah. my opinion. The sugar-free Great K brand is subpar. Yeah. And this is just on par. Yeah. Okay. So we'll keep that in mind as we try others in the future. And I will put up on the website a running list of the brands we try in our opinions form. Okay, so let's jump into Chapter 7 of Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell's From Hell. We have, in the last couple chapters, seen the murder of the first canonical Ripper victim and then the public response, which was immediate and huge. Keep in mind, violence against women is not exactly an unknown in London or Whitechapel. I mean, a guy was arrested just a few years before for running around and cutting women up. Didn't kill any of them, though. Just brandishing a knife and cutting women. And, you know, when, uh, I don't want to share the details of this here, but there was an assault by a gang called the Nichols Gang in Whitechapel, not to be confused with Polly Nichols, the first victim. And... In fact, that is the gang that the so-called four whores of the apocalypse are trying to get money for protection from. It was, in fact, a common theory at the time of the Ripper murders that maybe the Nichols gang were behind it. They had been known to really be brutal with women who worked the streets who didn't pay up protection money. Yes, yeah, some people still think it may have been a stray member of the gang. Yeah, and there had been some gruesome acts of violence on women by the Nichols gang, uh, in, including one that's well documented where they did pretty grotesque to things to her body, including inserting things and in glass bottles and all kinds of stuff. I don't want to go into details. Uh, it's a little gruesome. But still, those were known acts of violence for known reasons. The Ripper murders had no known reason. Mm-hmm. So, and the violence done to the body after death, post-mortem, was certainly above and beyond anything that had been observed in the other crimes. Mm -hmm. So, they caught public imagination immediately from Polly Nichols' death. So, by the time we get to September the 1st, when the second murder happens, people were really stirred up and wondering, are we going to have another murder? So, we saw Frank Aberline last chapter, and now we're on chapter 7, A Torn Envelope. September the 1st, 1888. And 
our first page are just these great panels of where we see the people that are going to factor into some of the story ongoing. We see the torn envelope itself that's sitting on top of a mantelpiece. We see a couple of women, one of whom is Annie Chapman, in a small boarding space of some kind. We see Siskert surrounded by his paintings with his face in his hand, consumed by guilt. We see somebody standing at a bar with just his arm. We see somebody in a slick pinstripe suit sitting in the offices of the Star. Now, for those who don't know the Star, the Star was, at the time, one of the most popular newspapers in London. This was the age of the newspaper. Now, it's hard for some people today to understand this, but news... What fresh new hell was that? <laughs> it's the science department, don't ask. This is the humanities building! Yeah, they get around. Oh, Lord help me. I... Don't know what that is. Okay, folks, if you never hear from me again... <laughs> Write to the Board of Regents at Miskatonic University and ask them to find out. Okay. The Star News... Okay, what I was saying was, it's hard for people to understand that in this day and age. But newspapers used to be a really big deal. I mean, there was even a time in my life when I personally subscribed to like three different newspapers. I still do, actually, except they're not printed on paper. I read them on my tablet. Mm Mm-hmm. But new at this time in London, things were different. Now, keep in mind, public education was still a fairly new thing, but it was growing. There was a growing class that was at least literate enough to read the daily paper. And there was often cause for multiple editions a day. So there were multiple newspapers printing multiple editions, editions a day. And these were big business. And the Star was one of these in London at the time. And it was one of the papers that was not concerned about whether or not a story might be how, how can we say, um, sensational. In fact, if it sold more papers, all the better. Picture of an actual... We were talking about this the other day. Uh, You asked me, did... Were chalk outlines ever really used? And I did a little bit of quick research online and found that they had been used, but not actually by pathologists or forensics people, but to leave a place for photographers to take pictures for publication in newspapers and such that showed where a body was without being gruesome. This was not a concern of paper like the stars. They wanted the corpse, and they wanted to show all the grotesque images in publishing. And in fact, did sometimes. Uh Some of the photos we have of the Ripper investigation came because of extremely zealous newspapers Uh who wanted photography, even when the police were trying to desensationalize things and decrease public attention. Uh And then onward, we see uh, this... Fellow sitting around looking out a window. We'll find out who he is shortly. We see Gold going out the door, and we see Aberline coming back into what looks like a police station. So this is sort of our cast right now. Mm-hmm. So as we go into the main pages, we run into Annie Chapman. 
Now, Annie Chapman is the second canonical Ripper victim, and there's a lot to say about her life. I will try to encompass it in fairly quick terms. I don't remember the exact dates of all the events in her life or <coughs> the names of everybody, but she was born to a respectable middle-class family and was one of several children. She got a reputation very early in her life for enjoying alcohol too much. In fact, when her siblings went teetotaler and uh, stopped drinking, she attempted to too, but apparently fell off the wagon quite a bit. Uh, she found drink very seductive. As she got older, she continued to be known to drink, but was known as industrious when she didn't drink. And when she did drink, she was still known to be a fairly reputable sort of person. You know, she didn't cuss, she didn't do bad things, but she did drink too much. She eventually found employment with a nice house and had a husband who was a coachman, if I recall correctly. She had three children. Unfortunately, a son who died when I think he was two years old, and a 12-year-old daughter who died on what would have been the son's second birthday. Mm -hmm. um, now, young children dying was not exactly rare in Victorian times. 12-year-olds a bit less so, though. Mm-hmm. The remaining daughter, I think, went to live with family or may have been uh, uh, in some sort of convalescent home. My understanding is the remaining daughter may have had some sort of health issues, but I'm not really clear on what. I have to wonder if, if she might have, you know, consumed alcohol while pregnant with the child. And perhaps that, you know, led to problems with the others. <laughs> Eventually, uh, after the death of the... 12-year-old daughter, she and the husband both returned to drinking very heavily, and they eventually split up. She went to live in London, and he began paying her 10 shillings a week um, alimony, basically, is what we would call it today, although their terminology was quite different. She lived off that in Whitechapel and supplemented it with little jobs, you know, she would buy matches or soap, resell them at a small profit. She did some cleaning, and she worked as a prostitute. Um, although perhaps not a lot. It, it's not really clear how much, because she had some money outside. However, the 10 shillings a week stopped because George Chapman, uh, her estranged husband, passed away. Mm. And obviously couldn't pay it anymore. This left her destitute, and she had to increase her other workload in order to survive, including the prostitution. Now, I have nothing against sex work. I don't think people should be ashamed of it, but the Victorians certainly were, and there's no doubt that to be driven to that in that culture and time, she was pretty hard up, and she barely found DOS money uh, many nights. Now, despite these various problems... And apparently being arrested a number of times for drunken, being drunk in public, public inebriation, and sleeping outdoors, she did not end up in magistrate's court. There are no records of that, which may be a reflection on her character that she behaved pretty well. She was not known for being temperamental and violent. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Now, that may seem out of character given some of the stuff we're going to see in this chapter, but it's important background. This chapter also very heavily draws on actual known history. Now, because of the popularity of the murders as entertainment in London at the time, as soon as another victim was found, the newspapers scoured high and low for every reliable bit of information on her life, which is why we know as much about her and the other victims as we do. Mm-hmm. But where Alan Moore drew very heavily from real history for this story, he did take a few liberties, one of which is that he can condense things. A lot of this stuff's going to happen in one day in the story, but actually transpired over weeks in actual history. Mm-hmm. So here we find Annie Chapman in the boarding house. She's broke. She's looking to borrow some money. There's some different accounts about her borrowing of money, but she ends up at the Britannia again with her friend And they're both kind of trying to charm this salesman uh, named Harry. Now, Harry obviously has a little bit of money. He likes the company of the ladies. He's probably going to do more than just buy them some drinks. And they're kind of competing. And then something happens where, essentially, Annie tells Harry that her friend stole money from him and replaced the more valuable coin with a coin of about the same weight that's worth a lot less. So Harry ends up accusing this friend of that. She accuses Annie of framing her. They end up in a fist fight. And this actually happened. Although not on the day of the murder as it's presented here. Now, Annie Chapman was also sometimes called Dark Annie because of some reports for her dark eyes and dark hair. Some people said she could get ugly when she'd been in the drink. Although other people said that wasn't so much the case. This might also be a reflection of her at different points in her life. There's also a number of indications that she may have been in very poor health by this point. It's not like chronic alcoholism leads to a strong, healthy body. Mm-hmm. So anyway, she ends up leaving the bar. She meets up with friends Uh, There's actually a very detailed timeline of her life at this point because, again, the newspaper scoured the city and anybody who saw her got questioned with times verified of exactly when they saw her. And several people did through the day. Meanwhile, while this is happening, Siskert is being eaten up with guilt and actually goes out to the bar to try to find uh, Mary, Mary Kelly who was his contact and his model, who set this all in motion. And it's at the bar, the Britannia, that he finds out, oh, she hangs out with these other women, one of whom is Polly Nichols, who was dead yesterday. And he's like, she's got to find me. Tell her, tell her when you see her. Tell her Walter's looking for her, Walter Sisker. It's not going to go well, though, of course. Meanwhile, Annie Chapman is with a figure that she calls the pensioner. Again, this is an actual person. There is some debate in history about what exactly his pension was from. Uh, A number of people reported things to the newspapers that turned out to not be accurate as far as his past military service and all that. There's actually some interesting tidbits 
about theories related to him that didn't work out. But we're going to gloss over those now. But we see Annie basically at his place giving him a bath and providing comfort. This particular chapter is not one appropriate for young kids, folks. After she relieves the pressure in his system, being as polite about it as I can, folks, um, we go away. But this is a reflection of the kind of thing she was doing to make ends meet. Mm -hmm. too. Meanwhile, we see the snazzy guy in the pinstripe suit back at the star, and he's sitting around trying to think of a way to increase the popularity. People were already interested in the murders, but they were the Whitechapel murders, the murder of a prostitute. Um, what more could be done with this to make it more interesting and sell more papers? And he says, we need a name. Because as we all know, every good murderer has a name. Right. And, I mean, Jack the Ripper was not the first Ripper. I mean, and certainly not the last. I mean... Famously, the Yorkshire Ripper, of mm -hmm. course. But the term Ripper had been used for violent attackers before this. Mm -hmm. So it was a popular... And, and you have to admit, it sounds good. Rip. I mean, it sounds like a violent action. The Ripper. Mm -hmm. It's great. It's perfect. Meanwhile, Annie Chapman is still wandering around the city. She's meeting contacts that are well-known. I'm not going to go over through all that detail. And we get to the man who is in the dark. Now, this gets to an interesting little bit of history. This guy's name is John Pfizer. He was an immigrant Jew. Uh, I believe he worked at least part-time as a butcher. And there's a lot of conflicting reports about John Pfizer and the phrase leather apron. Some of the girls... And the area had reported being beaten up by a guy who they called Leather Apron and said they were scared of. One of the police officers, very close, and I'll talk more about him later, very closely associated Leather Apron with John Pfizer. And he was all but framed for the murders. In fact, this local police officer was absolutely adamant that John Pfizer was the Ripper. Of course, one of the problems was he had a very good alibi, including that he was hanging out with a cop when the murders were committed. That's about as tight of an alibi as you can get. But he was Jewish and had previously been guilty of attacking women, which was enough for this cop in Whitechapel who really wanted to be famous. And, and, well, we'll get to that in a minute. Meanwhile, we see Annie Chapman, who's almost collapsed in the streets, and then we see Dr. Goal being collected by his coachman. As the story goes on, we see a number of little incidents. I'm not going to go through all of them. But the coachman, Netley, does catch up with Annie Chapman, gives her a scarf to wear, Remember, the streets are not well lit at night, and a distinctive colorful scarf will help them ID her. And Netley makes arrangements for her to be with his gentleman. Again, these laudlum-coated grapes are given to her. 
She guides them to a place where she says they can have alone time and he can take his time, which is exactly what he wants. She leads him to the sort of back alley little corridor space, a yard, uh, not in the sense of having grass in it, but just being a sort of space uh, for some homes in the back, which was locked, but very easy to unlock from the other side. And in fact, many people knew how to do it and use the yard for a place for a little bit of privacy off the main street. Gull goes back there with her. He refers to her as and other women as his brides. Now, Gull has this delusion, maybe it's a delusion, that he's seen the Godhead, that he is somehow divine himself in some way. He is getting clues from the Elephant Man as the avatar of Ganesh. And, of course, brides in the sense of these sort of sacred women who would be committed to a god is a pretty old terminology. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the Greeks referred to you know, oracles sometimes as like brides of Apollo. Even today, nuns are sometimes brides of Jesus, this sort of thing. So Gol is invoking this imagery of these women who are dedicated to him, essentially. Mm-hmm. That he's the god that they are brides of, and their deaths are just him as the groom taking what he owns. Creepy as fuck, folks. Yeah. If murder it's, itself wasn't bad enough. So, he takes her into this backyard, and he passes by a window, but inside the window, it's really well lit. Not by, like, a gas lamp but electric bulbs hanging from the ceiling. And he looks in and there's a television. And a poster with Marilyn Monroe holding down her skirts from the seven-year inch itch famous scene. Um, And of course, Gull is freaked out. What he's doing is he's seeing into the future. He's seeing the future that he, as the architect of the 20th century, is creating. The guy sitting around uh, slovenly watching TV. Mm-hmm. This, and, and Gull can't understand it. It's a scene of magic and superstition to him, but he's viewing his future creation. Mm-hmm. He's building it by killing these women, and now he gets a glimpse of it. But is he going mad, or is it real? Well, he manages to get over his shock, catches up with Annie Chapman, and uses the same scarf that was given to her to choke and murder her. And then cuts her body up in this just grotesque, ritualistic way, including leaving her own intestines draped over her left shoulder. He also takes contents out of her pockets and leaves them in a sort of semicircle pattern around her, kind of ritualistically. Uh, much research was done about all of these items to try to trace them and see if any of them could provide any insight to the real killer in history. And unfortunately, none of them did. Uh, And police were very thorough about it. I mean, there was a lot of legitimate criticism of police during the Ripper investigations, but the detail they did in tracking down all these items shows that they were not flippant about it. And with that, the chapter kind of ends... I mean, Aberline finds the body, he goes to talk, 
to the inspector of J Division, uh, whose name I'm choking on right now. Nelson, Helson, something like that. Anyway, he's in the chapter and who seems more concerned with how they spell his name in the newspaper than anything else. But that's largely, I think, an invention of Moore's. Uh, I believe the inspector did later write papers, but they were uh, uh, about his life and about the investigation, but they're not considered reliable because he basically is believed to have just made up whatever he thought would help sell his memoirs. Uh, and it's probably on the basis of that that Moore is having him act kind of like a toff here. You know, just like, well, I, I don't think they spelled my name correctly, and I wonder if they'll interview me. Oh, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Go investigate your crime. It's fine. I don't know why I just did it in that accent. Yeah, why did you do an American Valley Girl for an old British man? I don't know. It kind of seems appropriate if all he's concerned about is how he looks in the paper, right? Fair. Um, the actual historical figure was... A quasi-career policeman. He worked in the police force for about 20 years. Uh, he got caught up in a uh, scandal in Scotland Yard in the late 1870s. Uh, but 1878, if I remember correctly. But wasn't really one of the figures of it. And ended up in the reorganization. Eventually promoted to the head of J Division. Which was the area of London that the first body, Polly Nichols, was found, which is why he became part of the ongoing investigation, even though the other bodies were not in his division. He eventually retired in the 1890s, 1895, I think, after 20 years on the force. And I think this was the only really major case in his time. Now, John, or Jack Pfizer, is picked up, and he's picked up by this local cop um, I'm trying to remember the, the cop's name off the top of my head the I'm trying to think how to say it the cop was a crook basically um, he, he, he basically claimed that everybody called him Johnny Upright for how noble and upright a policeman he was. In fact, what evidence has been able to be gathered is that he gave himself that name and insisted everybody called him it. Anyone who has a weird nickname that they tell you to call them by, they gave themselves a nickname. Yeah. Now, his actual last name was Thick. I don't think they had the, you know, the... the your thick-in-the-head implication back then we do now in language. Um, but he had arrested Pfizer for his assaults on women before, and Pfizer had done a couple of these. But, you know, there's a bit of a difference between a drunken hitting of a woman in the street, which I'm not saying is good, but it's still a huge jump from that... To, to murder. To murder and evisceration. Mm-hmm. There's a few leaps there. But, but Thick Sergeant Thick was eager... To get the credit for it. And so he claimed it. Mm -hmm. And then at the very end of the chapter, we see Aberline return to the Ten Bells to sit down and have a drink with his quote-unquote Emma. Which, of course, is one of the ladies that he doesn't even know it, but is tied to the murders he's investigating. Although he's told her he's a saddle maker. 
and as his father was, and she will, of course, die before the story is out. And we know this because she's one of the canonical victims. Now, I should also note, there is nothing in historical record to indicate that Frederick Aberline ever had a relationship with one of the victims, that he ever cheated on... Well, he doesn't even cheat on his wife in this, unless you consider sitting around a table and talking cheating. Um, but there's nothing to indicate in history that the actual Frederick Abeline had ever met or spoke with any of the canonical victims. It's possible he did, because he did work in Whitechapel for many years, but we don't have any knowledge of him doing so. And then one more page after that, we get back to the reporter at the Star who's sitting around with some red ink and writing on a postcard the famous Dear Boss letter, from which the title of the work comes from, From Hell. And then that gets mailed. Now, it's pretty well suspected the Dear Boss letter was complete hokum. And there are a variety of reasons for this. It sounds too newspapery. Right. And unfortunately, we don't have the original postcard anymore. Nobody knows what happened to it. It was put in police evidence, and it was practiced at the time for the evidence when a case was closed to just be taken as mementos and souvenirs by cops. Nobody knows what happened to it. However, we do have a photograph of it, and we have people's recollections of it, and there are several things very iffy about it. One of which is we are told very clearly that it was bright red. Now, it, they claimed it was written in blood, but, okay, folks, I don't know how many of you know this, but by the time blood dries out, it's not bright red anymore. Mm-hmm. It would have been a dark brown at best. Mm -hmm. And I also have it on good authority from people that blood does not make a good writing agent. Yeah. Because there are people who have taken pig's blood and tried to use it as a writing agent to see if you could have realistically written a postcard like this with it. Yes. And all the Dracula Ripper stuff has been tested. Right. And they couldn't. It, it was a nightmare. At, at best, they would have had to have mixed it with some other agents. To make it good writing material. And this stuff was very clear. We can see that in the surviving photograph. It was like ink. And more likely was red ink. Also, it wasn't directed to the police. It wasn't sent directly to a newspaper. It was sent to an agency that supplies stories to newspapers. The kind of entity that you would think of if, say, you were a reporter... Mm -hmm. but ye, random people on the street would not think of sending something to. And then everything was so well written in it, so perfectly melodramatic. Yeah, and the times murderers have sent stuff to police, it's been directly to the police. Right. And there are other things that may have been from the actual Jack the Ripper, but the Dear Boss from Hell is probably not it. it probably is, as it's represented here, composed by somebody in the newspaper industry to help build up interest. Now, there has been research and there is speculation about a specific person who probably did it and who, in fact, was later censured by the star. And there are vague references 
and the star's later internal documentation, like reports to shareholders, kinds of stuff, where basically the editor-in-chief says, this guy did it, and I didn't know he did it, and if I had known, I wouldn't have let him. <laughs> Please don't fire me. And, and I've taken all the actions I can to censure him. Mm-hmm. And it is, in fact, likely that it is fake as it's represented here. Which, of course, works well for this story because Gull is not interested in advertising the murders because he wants to do them and get away with it. Although, perversely, he likes the publicity because of his weird, bizarre, pseudo-religious philosophies. And that is the torn envelope. Now, I've skipped some details about what is a reference to the torn envelope as a reference to this uh, envelope that was taken from the pensioner's house. Annie Chapman had a box of pills for one of her medical conditions. The box apparently spilt open and she put some in the envelope with her, which was found by her corpse, which led the investigation to the pensioner, who was a suspect also for a time, but cleared for a number of reasons. So this chapter is not a big thematic development. This chapter is an example of something that is great buildup. Alan Moore did a lot of research and a lot of reading, and he made some minor tweaks to make the story flow in a very linear fashion because he had supporting stuff he wanted to happen in story, not with confusing flashbacks and flash forwards. But he just wanted a series of facts and events. He wanted stuff that if you're familiar with the Ripper murders, you could use as touchstones, or if you went out and read about Ripper murders, you could, you know, feel how much he enhanced the story with them. But the thing that is relevant to the thematic development is Gull seeing the future. Because Gull has no concept of TV. He has no idea of who Marilyn Monroe will be. So this is Alan Moore saying that Gull is not insane. There really is something supernatural happening. And Gull really is fucking up the time stream. Oops. So, obviously, Doctor Who needs to get involved. Obviously. But he won't. Yeah. Because BBC have rules about that shit. They do? (laughs) Oh, trust me, they do. So, uh, our next podcast is going to be about the use of intellect as a heroic trait. And then after that, we'll come back and do the next chapter of Jack the Ripper. How does that sound? Sounds good. And uh, to the hound that wandered in here while we were recording and left that little present for us to smell. Yeah. God help my soul. All right. Keep reading comics. We'll see you soon. Bye. Bye.